Hello and welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you interesting guests, publications and experts to test frontier ideas. This is episode number four of Mint and Burn, and today we'll be talking to Mark Miller, Chief Scientist and Bill Tuller, Economist at Agoric on Agoric Markets, along with resident experts from the RMIT Blockchain Hub, Professor Jason Potts and Professor Sinclair Davidson. Welcome. So let's start by being very kind to anyone listening to this and explaining what are Agoric Markets. So the original definition back in the Agoric papers that uh, Eric Drexler and I wrote in 1988 uh, is a software system using market mechanisms based on a foundation that provides for the encapsulation and communication of information, access, and resources among objects. So that sentence, obviously, uh, I'm trying to pack a lot in there. So let's unpack it some. The encapsulation and communication is a sort of primitive rights theory that is a way to look at properties that are pretty much universal to modern computation, to modern ways of writing programs, uh, which is that you have these units of organization, uh, objects, uh, modules, uh, apple, applets, etc. You have these units of organization for which I'll generally just be using the term object to refer to all of them. And they have some stuff inside. They have some data that they, um, that they manipulate that is inside the object. And then they communicate to other objects by making requests, by calling functions, by calling methods, by sending messages. There's various uh, forms, but all of, um, of the concrete means by which they make requests of each other, but we can just consider all of them to be requests. And those requests can carry um, uh, information and can carry access to other objects. So for me, the big aha moment that started me on all of this was back in 1983, I was very excited about object-oriented programming, which was where this notion of encapsulation and communication, sort of this, this notion of organizing computation around this sort of property-like, property rights-like notion of ownership and transfer, uh, that was where it started for me is I was interested in that and I was interested in Hayekian economics. And I was explaining to a friend of mine, Eric Drexler, how excited I was about object-oriented programming. And he said to me, oh, that's like Hayek's explanation of what's good about property rights that society has a massive plan coordination problem, that you have zillions of different agents making plans for the use of various resources, uh, where these plans are formulated in ignorance of each other, and the plans, if they simply happen to uh, conflict in using common resources, can create a nightmarish plan coordination problem. So by dividing up the resources, into these separate plots uh, and such that each owning person or corporation, each owning entity can make plans exclusively in terms of what they own, know that own, knowing that they're not subject to arbitrary conflict of interference from the plans that others have made. Uh, now you've done a lot to reduce the plan coordination problem. And, the, as, and as um, the Austrians here will uh, appreciate, the center of Hayekian economics uh, is the plan coordination problem. How is it that separate plans formulated in ignorance of each other tend to mesh well? And that aha moment where Eric uh, said that 
uh, I realized that all of that is also the central problem of software engineering and the big advance of object-oriented programming uh, in the early 80s was the rediscovery of essentially that same organizational principle with regard to giving small portions of code exclusive access to particular pieces of data and then allowing the code to communicate requests uh, and access as they make requests of each other. Um, so that led to the Agoric Papers in 88, in which we are trying to paint a unified notion where we, uh, during the intervening years, we translated back and forth several times between our understanding of software engineering and our understanding of economics, and we're trying to help software engineers better understand how to view software economics, software, software engineering from this Hayekian economic perspective and how to import into software engineering ideas from economics to help software engineering. And in particular, these were the early days of distributed systems. I was at Xerox Park, uh, Ethernet had been invented not terribly long before. Uh, distributed systems were just getting started. Uh, and Eric and I realized that the central planning approach to resource allocation in computational systems was not going to scale, it was going to break down. So we wanted to import price mechanisms as well into computation uh, based on this Hayekian bridge between computation and economics to import price mechanisms so that uh, computation resources uh, were uh, allocated with, with uh, dynamic pricing, uh, processor scheduling, for example, uh, being auctioning off the next time slice, uh, the next uh, slice of what the uh, computer's processor does next, uh, and that this price information would guide each of the participating units of computation to make decisions as if guided by an invisible hand that would serve the utility of the, the system as a whole. Uh, and at this point in the story, uh, Bill comes in. Thanks, Mark. That's a very um, elegant kind of summary of um, the kind of aims and objectives, but also the link between the computer engineering and the um, economics. Bill, obviously a lot has happened uh, since the 80s. Uh, tell us where you're at in terms of the project. Uh, yeah, well, as Mark said, I first came into this in 1989, um, but I, coming more, you know, Mark came at it from the computation side where my background was economics. And uh, we, back then, saw that this was really the future of where things were going and, and decided that this was what we wanted to spend our lives doing. And you know, since then we've been in various ways, both Mark and I trying to make this happen. And back in the early nineties, we started a company called Agorix um, that tried to realize this. And this was started even, even before the uh, World Wide Web um, days. And, um, you know, obviously we were, we were a little bit too soon, but now with blockchains coming, we've realized that, you know, we have another chance to realize a lot of the dreams that we saw back then. So we formed a company a couple of years ago called Agoric that is, you know, building a blockchain and trying to realize the vision that we saw back in the uh, 80s. Phenomenal. And then Sinclair and Jason, you guys have been doing some work with the Agoric team. Tell us a little bit more about um, what you've been working on. Well, it was it was very interesting because um, I think it was 2017. It might have been maybe 28. I think it was 2017. Uh, Jason and I were in at Berkeley at a conference, and we were presenting the ideas of Oliver Williamson um, in the blockchain space. And it, by I think pure coincidence, Bill was there and um, liked our talk and actually came and spoke to us um, in one of the tea breaks. So we had a long, long chat to Bill, and it turns out. 
Bill is actually a graduate of George Mason University, which is, is one of our favorite universities, because the, the economics program there is, is, is very different and unique compared to many other economics programs. And the next year, I think 2018, we met up again in New York at a Consensus, where Bill introduced us to Mark. And uh, we, I think we met more or less at a tea time. It was a very quick hello. But the next morning in the breakfast hall, uh, Mark was looking for a place to sit and have his breakfast. And I saw him and there was a seat next to us. So waved him over and I said, Mark, come and sit here. And he came and sp- sat down. And we then discovered our, our interest in Hayek. Um, and uh, um, what Mark is calling sort of the, the Agorics project, we would call the socialist calculation problem. Because how does a centralized economy organize and plan itself? And it, it can't. And Mark had realized that same problem from a computer science perspective. Um, because he'd also, because uh, I said to Mark, you know, your economics is awesome. Where do you get it from? And he said, oh, Don Lavoie. Was, uh, and, and the late Don Lavoie is somebody we know well. Um, we've read all his works and what have you. And we ended up just spending hours and hours and hours talking about Hayek and the problems. And it's more or less just taken off from there. Yeah, what's remarkable about this is just the, the consilience of having this very general abstract problem of coordinating distributed, you know, a group of people or a group of things coming together to solve a complex coordination problem. And so just seeing um, the the types of you know, solutions in completely different fields. And so there's this notion that markets can coordinate through the price mechanism, economizing on information to make distributed plans, mer- I mean, mesh together is just the sort of miracle of how economies how decentralized market systems work and um i think sinclair and myself were just astounded um at first just to realize that you've got exactly the same problem deep in computer science in a field you know a million miles away from there but has the same sort of architectural complexity of bunches of different bits of code um needing to coordinate access control to 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 to, you know merge and, and, and mesh their plans and I think this is the the what we just found absolutely fascinating about this idea of agoric systems um, from very very different perspectives coming together and having the same sort of class of of, of solution. It's been it's been fascinating. And this connection to Hayek, who you know this was sixty years ago, seventy years ago, sort of more or less laid out a lot of this, these core insights um, you know, well before we had a digital world. To, to, to put all that back together again. So, you know, incredible sort of intellectual consilience. Amazing. So, so where are you guys at in terms, of, in terms of this idea of computational markets? Like how, how has it been developing both in terms of what, what you've built or what you've tested or, or launched and, and kind of what are the ways that you've, you've watched people engaging with it? We are building a smart contracting system uh, on top of a distributed object capability system uh, on top of a blockchain infrastructure. Uh, So uh, there's several levels here, but the underlying core theory is is very much uh, pervades all the levels, which is again, this encapsulation and communication uh, as a way to coordinate. Uh, the at a, So at Agoric, we're uh, building on our decades of research on how to do language-based, programming language-based support for smart contracting so that the contracts can be written understandably and reliably, so that uh, programmers who are not specialists can succeed at writing contracts and can, can, and can, and can uh, read those contracts and have a good uh, chance at 
understanding that the contracts mean what they think they mean. Uh, what we've seen in the rest of the blockchain world is quite the opposite, is that contracts are incredibly hard to get right, that experts spend tremendous amounts of effort trying to get a contract right. They'll then go and have it audited by uh, other firms that inspect it and, and try to um, uh, give it a clean or dirty bill of health. And then we've seen these things get deployed and due to a bug, hundreds of millions of dollars disappear overnight with no recourse. Now, uh, this will happen in any software system. Uh, bugs happen. We're not going to make bugs not happen. But the key thing was the nature of the bugs. Uh, in our research through especially um, uh, the early 2000s uh, around my research language, the e-language, uh, we had an open source community writing smart contracts in E. E itself was a language, it was a general purpose secure distributed language, but in which the driving use case that the research was around that drove the language design was smart contracts. And we figured out how to use it well to write smart contracts. We figured out good patterns. And as we saw a lot of these bugs happening in the blockchain world, so many of us were saying, if they had only been writing the contracts the way we had come to understand how to write them, they wouldn't have had these bugs. Uh, so we realized there was an opportunity here. And we're now bringing our understanding of how to support the writing of contracts, both at the language level and at the patterns of organization and at the abstractions, uh, and together with a whole bunch of new innovations uh, around the writing of contracts that improve uh, quite a lot over what we had understood in previous decades. Uh, so we're doing that. Uh, and I've been focused on, on building up to the, smart to the smart contracting layer, assuming that we have an underlying blockchain system that works as a reliable computer. Um, uh, uh, Bill and Jason and Sinclair and the other RMIT people, uh, the, well, the RMIT people have been collaborating with Agoric uh, on closing the loop, on bringing the set of market institutions that we now can, that we are now creating by writing smart contracts on our infrastructure to, to use those to create the incentive underpinnings for the blockchain. Uh, so that our blockchain is itself built on a system of uh, self, uh, a self-stabilizing incentives to create a robust blockchain. And I'll, I'll let uh, everybody else talk more about that. Yeah, that would be great. Feel free to jump in. So an, an, an important part of, of, the, of what Mark has been talking about is actually uh, defining property rights. Um, when you trade goods and services, what you're actually trading is a vector of property rights. And, and you can describe the good that's been traded in those attributes of the good. So the Agoric system actually allows you to specify what those goods and, uh, and what those vectors are and then trade them and price them. Um, which, which I, I think is actually understanding what is going on in a blockchain from a deeply profound economic level, which is something that we certainly don't see that much of in, in this particular space. So uh, uh, what Mark and Bill and the others have been doing has, has been very much focused on getting the underpinnings, the economics, the property right aspects of this correct um, and, and that's what makes this particular project very exciting. But, but at the same time, um, when you are building economic infrastructure, which is really what a blockchain is, when you're building this economic infrastructure, you have to get the economic institutions correct. Now, nowadays, people think of economic institutions as, oh, you know, we've got a reserve bank that does money. Uh, we've got regulators that do all sorts of other things. But in a blockchain space, you are actually more or less building an economy and you've got to get that economy um, fully integrated with the outside world, with other opportunities in order to get a viable 
blockchain going. So that's what we've been thinking about working with, making sure that there are arbitrage opportunities, that there's no artificial pricing, there are no artificial choke points in the system, nothing that would actually make it not work well. And uh, this has actually been very interesting and challenging from an economics perspective because you've got to think it's the property rights that are important it's the pricing that's important it's the opportunities to trade that are important and that's what you have to build in when you are building a a, a viable blockchain solution to to trade opportunities and um, that's what we've been doing over the last few years it's, it's been very very exciting work incredible and can you can you talk about what the Hayekian or the Austrian economics approach to property rights is to kind of close that loop for us? Well, uh, how I would think of that is, is is not just Hayekian, but also to a large extent, the, the UCLA approach of people like Armin Elkian and Harold Demzetz, uh, where they also had to find property rights as uh, not relationships between people and goods, but relationships between people and people. What are you trading? You are trading this vector of opportunity, this vector of attributes uh, from one to another. And so it is, it, it, is, it is a case of allowing prices to work in a system in giving people opportunities to meet and trade as opposed to specify how that trade is actually going to work out. So uh, the, the, the Hayekian approach of, of not planning an economy, but rather giving market space for people to operate and then to define what those objects are that people are trading. Yeah, the other interesting aspect of the Hayekian or the Austrian approach to economics is how it conceives it as a complex, evolving, emergent um, system. And that, that notion, I mean, and what this, this is particularly interesting from the perspective of knowledge. So the, the Austrian conception is, is that an economy is made of, of institutional specifications, of institutions that establish property rights, that, that, that create rules, and that those rules relate to particular things, resources, and so on. And that what an economy is, 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 is doing, effectively, is it's a, an emergent rule system that is made of sort of base layer rules that establish property rights. It's made of another layer of rules that establish contracting and, and exchange and agreements and so on. But this, this stack of, of this, this rule system stack. And what is going on then is that that economic activity is the, is the coordination of people coming together um, using those rules to coordinate their activity with other with other with other with other players in the system, but what an economy then is is this emergent, evolving rule system um, that you know from a fundamental perspective is is therefore it's not predictable in a in a sense you can't plan it, um, and it's able to sort of create you know emergent emergent structures and these emergent structures are the patterns of economic organization. So what the Austrian perspective ends up doing is is just being very skeptical of the ability to plan an economy or skeptical of the ability of high-level policy to come down over over the top of it. Um, What that means then is that the you know, what a what a good economy looks like, what, what an effective economic institution mechanism looks like is is a, is a well-designed um, emer- emergent stack of rules that is able then to um, enable people to come together and, and do all of the things that they need to do. And this sort of goes back to this, this notion before about that's the same challenge that you have in a very complex software system is that it'll start to have these, it's a it's sort of an emergent stack of, Rules and capabilities um, that then creates up that creates capabilities for things to happen. Yeah. So a, a important shift in perspective that that happened since we wrote the original papers is the original papers we saw this as an analogy between the human world of economics and the internal world of software systems that both of them can be considered networks of entities making requests of other entities, uh, where the knowledge of the different entities is composed together 
to bring about um, a greater utilization of knowledge than any one of the entities could have done. Um, uh, but these were just two analogous systems back in the 80s. Today, we look out at the world and the world is already one in which uh, people make requests of people, people make requests of objects and software, objects make requests of objects within the internals of software engineering, objects make requests of people, think about workflow systems or an Uber driver. Um, uh, so we've got a complex emergent economy that is the, where the networks involve both human to human request making and object to object request making and all of the other combinations as well. And when you take this uniform view of it and you can introduce smart contracts in a smooth manner where the players might be programs operating on behalf of people at a, a variety of levels of abstraction, but the different roles can be uh, occupied by people or software uh, in ways that can change hands over time and still have the emergent structure of the system be this emergent cooperative uh, request making, producing uh, great wealth. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up actually, Mark. There's another um, great paper, one of the Agoric ones from the 80s on this idea of evolutionary computation. And I'm curious, like, how far does this idea go? And it's nice that you draw kind of draw it into the, the real world around objects and people making requests. But does AI and automation play into this? Like, like, can you sort of science fiction it for us a bit as well in terms of not a defined end state because it's evolutionary, but like how this could evolve? The... There's a lot of discussion these days in, uh, in certain circles about uh, AI dangers and about the dangers of superintelligence. And a lot of this discussion around that assumes that the whole issue of human, human beings um, dealing with the dangers of, of superintelligence, that these are new things, that superintelligence is something that human beings have not encountered before. In fact, large human organizations are superintelligences. And when you take a look at a lot of this literature, you see that they have many of the same characteristics as the uh, hypothetical new superintelligences we're supposed to be worried about. So our perspective is that the history of political science and institutional economics and all this is already essentially a history of how do we, how do we manage these superintelligences so that what they're doing is aligned with human needs. Um, uh, all of the uh, issues in uh, political science of uh, separation of powers, et cetera, et cetera, uh, all of these things are ways to, to manage superintelligences by having them be part of a larger network where they're balanced against each other and the emergent property of the system is still uh, uh, as much as possible uh, peaceful and cooperative and not centralizing. So we see the, the civilization as a whole is um, uh, already a superintelligence that's emergent from the intelligence of people and software. And as software gets more intelligent, more of that intelligence will come from, from AI, but it will still be an organic overall emergence. Uh, and to the degree to which we can increase cooperative interactions, uh, we're accelerating that. Uh, and a smart contracting fabric that creates risk-free cooperation uh, that can be quite expressive uh, will certainly help accelerate that. Yeah, interesting. 
So, so how do you build security into this system as well? Like you mentioned before that you're using a coding language, which is kind of human, human readable. And part of that is around security. But then you also mentioned that the Agoric smart contracting layer is built on a secure blockchain. I guess, what about, what about the other layers here? Or, or how do you try to ensure security um, in the social and the technical, I guess, of such a, a complex economic system? The way, the way I think of security here, I mean, there's lots of different ways you can think about, but I, but you know, I, I sort of think David Hume put it best when he talks about the stability of possession is transference by consent and the performance of promises. And so we're trying to build a system that, you know, enforces property rights and the credible commitments that people need in order to create cooperative systems. And in order to build this as an emergent property of the system, you, you know, have to build it in these layers of abstraction. And traditionally, we sort of focused, and you know, especially Mark, on this smart contract programming layer. But for that to be secure, it needs to run on a secure computational platform. And that's what blockchains give us by allowing us to have, you know, credible computers that we can rely on because it's not controlled by one entity, but, you know, by the consensus of the group running, running the blockchain that gives us a much higher level of security of the underlying system. But that alone is not enough. You also need a programming language that allows the programs running on this blockchain to be able to interact securely. And that's where our object capability architecture that's built into the programming language plays a role. And then on top of that, you need to build the more, you know, institutions that the property rights and exchange mechanisms, what we call our, you know, our Zoe platform and our ERTP or electronic rights transfer protocol that actually allows for the secure transfer of possession by consent. And it's by building up these layers and it's really taken, you know, not just us, but this broader community some 30 years to really figure out how to build these layers that we're finally getting to the point where we can, you know, have this level of secure cooperation have occurring online. One of the themes that, that comes up is um, there's no such thing as perfect safety. Um, uh, but what you can do is partition risk, is um, uh, have, uh, if there's some large knot of risk, if you can uh, partition it into um, uh, separate, let me, let me give an example. Um, uh, so at Agoric, we have an invention that we're calling Zoe that provides a new safety property we call offer safety. Uh, offer safety means that instead of the participants in the contract handing the rights at stake to the contract itself, uh, instead they uh, put, put the rights into escrow with Zoe and make offers. Um, uh, the problem with giving the rights to the contract itself, which is what we, what, you know, what everyone was doing, including us until recently, uh, is that if there's a bug in the contract, the rights at stake in the contract are at risk. And that's a lot of risk. And a bug in the contract can thereby uh, uh, cause the, that the entirety of those rights to get lost. Uh, offer safety says at a low level, we can organize a basic quid pro quo mechanism using a fixed amount of code, which is Zoe itself. Uh, Zoe holds on to the rights uh, to be reallocated according to the decisions of the contract, but in putting the rights in, each of the players makes an offer, says, in exchange for putting this in, I want these rights back. Zoe guarantees that the only reallocations the contract can do are ones that either refund the rights that were put in or give back what the offerer had asked for in return. Um, uh, when I explained this to the RMIT guys, Jason said, oh, that's an Edgeworth box. I said, what? Um, uh, 
But uh, so it turned out that we had come across a, you know, we had sort of independently reinvented a pattern that was used for analysis in economics. But the key thing here is that a bug in the contract can still do damage, but it's the residual damage after offer safety is taken care of, after the quid pro quo of the basic contract is guaranteed. And that residual damage is often tremendously smaller than uh, the risk you had started with. Oh, that's fantastic to start to see the interactions between disciplines as well. Sinclair, you're going to jump in? Well, I was going to say the the Zoe is is an astounding idea. Uh, 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 when Mark explained it, uh, we, we were sitting in San Francisco and Mark was at the whiteboard and he drew it out. Uh, Jason and my jaws dropped because one, yes, it, it is an Edgeworth box, but it's actually a practical application of an idea in economics uh, that whenever you would teach it, you always say, look, this is just an abstraction, an idea. It, it never really happens like this. But here it actually was being coded up that people will be trading on it. But the the the, the other thing that I, I can't really overemphasize how exciting it is, is the, the, the offer safety. Um, Whenever I look at, at, at blockchain products now and apps and what have you, very often the first thing that springs to my mind is this needs offer safety. And, and Mark and the Agorix team have, have come up with this idea that that's going to make trading on, on, on blockchain so much easier and safer than it has been before. Um, it, it's an astonishing breakthrough and uh, incredibly exciting. So it, it's just been wonderful watching it sort of just emerge. Yeah, it's also interesting just to see, I mean, again, just to go back to this really basic point that what you've got here is a an advance in computer science and, you know, contract engineering that's providing, um, you know, reducing, um, adding security and, and providing offer safety and so on. And that's a good thing. You think, well, you know, of, of course we want that. That's that's like, you know, privacy is a good thing and, and security and safety, these are all good things. But the point that Mark made before, I think, is, is incredibly interesting here, is, is that from a technical perspective, um, you know, safety and security and, and, and those sort of features are good. But what they do, I mean, from an individual perspective, but what they do is they lower the cost of cooperation, or they lower the risk that comes from cooperation, which then puts this very much into an economics context of... Um, of exchange and, and and you know an economy is basically an infrastructure for co for cooperation, and all of the institutions and rules and laws and so on that that, that constitute the the you know, the order of an economy are technologies that lower the cost of, of of cooperation. And you know when you have that, that's where wealth and growth and human flourishing comes from. And to sort of see this connection between um, the you know, computer science, engineering, development of increased security in office safety and contracting, um, mapping directly to this is this is this is how you build an economy, and that connection between you know um, you know is 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 completely seamless in this infrastructure. And this is why this notion that you know what Agoric is is you know. Um, computable infrastructure for an economy it's it, it is actually it's not a metaphor it's 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 actually happening on the ground. Uh, we, we, we saw it. We thought, wow, this is like really abstract economic ideas just suddenly coming to life before your eyes and actually being coded up. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal, I guess, um, even from when when you guys started um, in the 80s with some of these ideas, you know, you said before the web. And I think, I mean, for a lot of um, uh, for a lot of kind of concepts around distributed coordination there they kind of haven't gone that way you know in terms of central planning versus decentralized planning i'm curious about um your perspective towards the role of governance in this economy anyone can jump in i think that throughout history people have had all sorts of ideas about governance. There's been a tremendous number of fantasies people have had that if only, people, if only we could organize society this way, uh, things would be so much better. Uh, one of, and, and a lot of those plans have, been, have gone wrong, and some of them in going wrong have ended up 
uh, causing millions of deaths. Um, uh, the, um, one of the things that is exciting in this domain is that you have an inherently nonviolent system within the digital realm. You can have people take their excitement about all sorts of ways to organize things, different forms of, of democracy, uh, different ways to make decisions, and try them out. And uh, this exploration, uh, many of these will fail. Uh, in biology, most mutations are fatal. Um, uh, likewise, um, most uh, ideas will turn out to have a flaw in them, uh, but some will succeed brilliantly. And the uh, and a small number, you know, a, a bit of progress on discovery of better governance institutions is a tremendously important form of progress. Um, uh, so there's you know, various very interesting experimental ideas like uh, Robin Hanson's Qtarchy, all sorts of things that can be tried in the blockchain world right now. Uh, there's all sorts of experiments with different forms of, of, of governance and uh, voting schemes. Um, so obviously uh, we're inclined in particular engineering directions in the governance systems we'll create, we're creating. I'll let others speak to that. Uh, but I just really want to emphasize that this uh, sudden ability for people to experiment and try out governance um, ideas uh, and have that go well and have us all benefit from the ones that turn out to be interesting discoveries is something I'm very, very much looking forward to. Yeah, I think what's exciting, you know, I think of it in terms of what Eleanor Ostrom calls institutional diversity. And that, we're, you know, what platforms like that we're building, you know, based on blockchain is going to allow for this tremendous experimentation and in institutional diversity. And what we'll end up with is not, you know, one single best system, but, you know, polycentric systems that sort of nest and interact with each other. And, you know, I think we're just, you know, you're sort of seeing in the DeFi space today, this, you know, rapid experimentation and just, you know, new things being tried out many which fail, but some succeed, you know, happening um, right now. But I think we're going to continue to see that with, you know, institutional diversities of all sorts of types, not just financial markets. Yeah, and that that rings true to some of those those earlier ideas as well around, um, you know, cyberspace and kind of having having options of, of the kind of rules and, and systems and, and sort of citizenships, I guess. Um, interesting you should mention Ostrom. Jason, you've been doing some thinking along those lines. Yeah, so um, I think the, the point that Bill makes there is that just dramatically this, this suite of technologies, this suite of economic um, institutions and institutional technologies dramatically lowers the cost of experimentation in the space. And you know, as Mark was saying, when you when you lower the cost of experimentation, you get more experimentation. Um, when you lower the cost of, of the risks of cooperation, you get more cooperation. So what we're entering into now is this potential golden age of low cost experimentation in you know economic cooperation. And, and um, you know there'll be a lot of mistakes. There'll be a lot of things that that we we that, that don't work out. But the point is is that we can test these very quickly. We can figure out the ones that work, and then we can scale those up um, effectively. So this. This very much could be um, one of the, you know, it could be very much at the beginning of a golden age of, of economic growth and prosperity because of these institutional technologies. And I think this, this key insight that um, these economic institutions are basically built, you know, economic institutions are just rule systems, but that they can be made of code and, and, and that that code can be made safe and secure and um, scalable is, is just an incredible um we haven't had this this type of breakthrough for a very long time. I mean, this is analogous in a sense to the invention of sort of functioning you know, rule of rule of law and legal systems to create corporate forms um, that, that you know, gave us modern capitalism in the first place. And what else are each of you excited to to see this kind of experimentation around? One of the 
forms of contracting that was actually uh, the main form in the first smart contracting system that Bill and I and other people at Agoric were involved in. The first smart contracting system was the American Information Exchange uh, back, uh, also started in the late 80s. Um, uh, that had a form of smart contracting that we now refer to as the split contract. Uh, and uh, let me explain part of the problems that the split contract addresses before I explain the split contract. In order to automate contracts, the terms that you're automating have to be automatable. But a tremendous amount of what we write into contracts are by their nature fundamentally not automatable. Uh, anytime we talk about um, uh, um, uh, good faith or best efforts, all of those terms are inherently uh, terms that are about calling in human judgment under dispute. That's what those terms mean in a contract. Uh, so in order to automate the part of contracts that are automatable, to benefit from that, but to still have the kind of rich world of contracting that includes uh, clauses that by their nature are inherently non-automatable, uh, you need to be able to couple the automated part with a natural language expression of the remaining parts to be interpreted by humans under dispute. So a smart contract has a smart has a pure smart contract component, uh, but one of the moves available to the players in the smart contract uh, is to put the contract into dispute. And the contract as a whole also has this natural language component. And the key thing is that both components were co-negotiated. They were negotiated at the same time as part of one whole. Um, when any of the players puts the contract into dispute, now uh, arbiters, according to the pre-agreed pre form of arbitration that the contracting parties set up, uh, arbiters would then take a look at the natural language parts and decide how to resolve the dispute. Um, Agoric is not currently building that. Um, uh, uh, we certainly intend to um, get back to there eventually. It's not our emphasis at the moment, but it's part of our overall vision of how you get into a world of rich, expressive, smart contracting that includes terms that we don't know how to automate and that, that in some terms that are inherently non-automatable. I think what I'm most excited about is is really this what we're going to think what I think we're going to see in this sort of exploration of new types of institutions for cooperation and you know I think that what the you know what the internet and and the web have been very good at is connecting people by interest rather than by geography you know wherever you are in the world you can get together by interests but now we're making it easier for them to you know, pool valuable resources, make decisions, allocate those resources, you know, figure out what they want to do together in order to you know, create wealth for each other. And you know, I think that we'll, we'll see just a whole range of institutions that right now are either too costly or that the you know, various legal systems have sort of ossified the choices over the years that we you know, can't do that will we'll start seeing you know, more ephemeral institutions, which are just people coming together to create projects that may have very short lifespans, but they can you know, safely pool resources together and, and make governance decisions around those resources in ways that you just can't today. Yeah, I, th I think we, we are on the cusp of a revolution that's going to be like the industrial revolution, but I think at bigger scale. Um, the, the Industrial Revolution completely changed how we live our lives, how we organize ourselves, how, how and what we did. And uh, the last, say, two, three hundred years of the Industrial Revolution, um, our, our society has been molded in very particular ways. I think to a large extent, this, this digital revolution is going to change a lot of the things that we have done and did 
and perhaps return some aspects of our lives back to pre-industrial revolution times, except without the poverty and the sickness and all that other stuff. But I kind of think that, that as human beings, the, the level of flourishing is going to increase over time. Um, and, and, and this is also consistent with a, a professor at MIT called Thomas Malone's electronic markets hypothesis where in the late 1980s and early 1990s, he was also talking about the idea that uh, what he called the, the uh, um, uh, information technology revolution uh, was going to change our lives um, and actually lead to a situation whereby we would have more markets operating in our economy than actually sort of large firms operating. Now, it didn't quite work out like that because a lot of the conditions which he identified were, were, were there, but what was missing was a trust technology, uh, a mechanism of industrializing trust. And that's what the blockchain has done for us. It has industrialized trust so that we can actually trade with each other in far safer environments, in far safer frameworks than we've had before. And what Mark and Bill and the Agoric people are doing is actually building that profound infrastructure that I think is going to revolutionize how we interact with other human beings and with and with software and software with humans, as Mark indicated, um, is going to revolutionize the, the number of profitable or, or fruitful interactions we can have with our fellow human that will actually massively expand our growth opportunities and massively expand the economy going forward. So I, I think there's a bright future um, as a result of this technology um, and our world is going to look very different but very better than it does right now. So that's what's exciting me. Yeah, I think one way to, um, uh, to see how revolutionary this is is that we all talk about the rule of law. And we know that uh, when human societies went from uh, rule by uh, king and decree to um, uh, various other forms, but, but, but uh, moved towards the rule of law in quite imperfectly, it was a tremendous advance. And it's much of what enabled the growth of the modern world. Um, but it's the rule of law that we have is incredibly imperfect. Uh, and it's very, very expensive to make use of it. Um, uh, what we're doing here is we're making law-like systems, the systems that create the benefits of rule of law, uh, accessible to everyone at low cost uh, and giving everyone a way to interact in an uncorruptible manner uh, with each other. Uh, degree of, of incorruptibility that's that's completely unrivaled with regard to any institutional arrangement that, that human beings had ever been able to create before. Yeah, and I think the evolutionary nature of that system is kind of one of the most um, interesting aspects of, the, of it that you pointed out earlier. What What is one of the the most kind of common or fundamental mistakes or misunderstandings that you come across? I don't know that for me, if it's so much a mistake or misunderstanding, but, but I do think there's a sort of different perspective on it that I have from a lot of people here where, where, where I do truly think the fundamental thing that's happening is a revolution in property rights. And it's figuring out how to create property rights in bits. And in some sense, you can look at this as you know, going back even further than when we started in the 80s, back to the, you know, 1960s, when you first had timeshare computing, where all of a sudden you had the problem on computers where you had multiple people interacting on this, you know, multiple people, multiple programs interacting together on the same computers. And that's led to sort of, sort of the issue of access control. And, you know, to put it in sort of Ostrom's terms, you know, the computers, sort of the von Neumann architecture computer is, is an open access system. And, you know, like any open access system, you'll get, you know, tragedy of commons unless you come up with some way of, you know, managing the resources. And there were really, even back in those early days, two fundamental approaches developed. And one was um, sort of the dominant way now of access control, which is access control lists, which 
fits the sort of model that that Eleanor Ostrom outlines in her um, book on um, governing common property, um, where you define you know resource boundaries and govern who can enter and determine you know what rights they have once they enter. Um, but the other system that established there was the uh, capability system, which really followed a private property type system, where it had much finer, more fine-grained division of rights to begin with, and then it was all about how do you combine those rights in ways that you get good cooperative behavior and not bad behavior. And this whole idea of how do you sort of enforce property rights in bits, analogous to the way you, we've sort of over history have figured out how to enforce property rights in atoms, is, is the revolution we're in and blockchain is a huge part of that, but it's just part of that. And we're still probably a long way to go before we truly figure out how to do that. Yeah. Anyone else want to jump in on that question? I think not not so much a misunderstanding. I think the, the challenge really around all of the space is increasing uh, um, user-friendliness. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm actually... Uh, with, when I speak to a lot of people about blockchain, they all think, "Oh, yeah, um, you you you're talking about investing in Bitcoin or you know hodling and all this sort of stuff." Whereas it's actually explained to people that this is a redesign of the underlying economic architecture, the the infrastructure that underpins our economy is actually what's going on here. And and but what I say to people is, a there needs to be a lot of user friendliness going on, but also the the I, I think it's the Gates quote where it says people underestimate, people overestimate what's going to happen in the next two years, but underestimate what's going to happen in the next ten years. Um, so even though we use the word revolution, um, this is actually going to be a, a rapid evolution. I think that, that that's going to occur. That it's certainly going to be changing things that we will actually see a lot of blockchain infrastructure coming into the way things are done and operated um so it, it, it's going to be those things it, it's not the it, it's not the cryptocurrencies that are important so much but it's the actual gains from trade that are going to be made using the underlying technology that that's the real game here Yeah, I see this is what's interesting about this is that if you think of the 19th and 20th century, we're perhaps an explosion of um, industrial technologies and, and the world of things. And, and we've got all sorts of magical, incredible things there. But during that entire period, we kind of entered a, um, and as the 20th century went on, more and more so, an institutional monoculture. Um, you know, we went from a, you know, in the Middle Ages and sort of we had you know, a lot of institutional diversity and, and um, that was that was a pro sort of a, a, you know, a problem back then. Um, but the, the nature of the evolutionary, the nature of the evolution we're going through right now is institutional evolutions, exploring this enormous um, falling of the cost of, um, as Mark was saying, just rule of law, but not just rule of law in, in the sort of general sense where we think of a nation and its legal system will have rule of law, but the ability for just a community, for a group of people to spin up legal I mean, agreements and have those agreements enforced um, at a low cost means that you know, we're in the same way that the last few hundred years was a period of great industrial technological evolution and dynamics. We're now entering a period of institutional technological and dynamics. And uh, I, I think that's, um, you know, that's going to be like, that's what these technologies bring is, is this ability to actually dramatically lower not just the cost of, of building economies, but the cost of experimentally building new, new types of, of economic infrastructure. Um, and I think you know, that's the thing that I think hasn't quite been fully realized yet, because there's a lot of the challenges around how do we regulate these things or how do we, you know, well, what does the politics of all of this look like is kind of missing the point in a sense, because what this does, these technologies enable is essentially groups of people to come together and just create their own um, rules, rule systems to, um, to govern their own private communities. You've each contributed um, such unique and valuable perspectives to this conversation. I'd love to hear uh, from both Mark and Bill, uh, what should people keep an eye out for and where can they find you should you wish to be found? 
Our company is named Agoric. Our website is agoric.com. Um, I would certainly uh, start there. Um, if you're a programmer, uh, we have uh, periodic hackathons. Uh, we just finished one. Uh, uh, these are uh, competitions with prizes. Uh, we have people write smart contracts on our platform. Uh, some of these are quite innovative. Uh, and we support you in getting started using our platform. Uh, so um, I would certainly uh, encourage people to actually start learning how to use our platform from a practical programming point of view. I would also say that coming up uh, soon, December 12th, um, Dean Tribble, our CEO, is going to be presenting um, at the Cosmos Interchange, um, I'm not sure the title of it, the Co Cosmos Interchange Conversations will be presenting um, really the first public discussion of our economic design, which um, you know the RMIT guys have been so helpful with. So I definitely want to check that out. Brilliant. Thank you so much to our guests, Mark Miller and Bill Tullow, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Mint and Burn. You can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have ideas or feedback on the podcast, and if you're interested in more information, visit rmitblockchain.io.